And a lot of the neuroscience research and consciousness research right now is kind of showing it's the opposite, perhaps, that the brain evolved to serve the body and to maintain homeostasis and to really take care of our physiology and our organs. And so there's this constant two-way connection going on. Hello, everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason. How are you doing out there? I am coming to you with a new episode of the Rose Woman podcast, and today's guest is Saga Briggs, an author and journalist who has spent the larger part of the COVID years researching and writing a book on interoception, or how we feel ourselves, and the implications that this new field of study has in psychology, in the understanding of mental health, and the understanding of somatic healing, and more. I don't know if you've ever done therapy with a somatic person, or if you've been working on feeling yourself, like knowing what you feel and what you really want. Uh, But one of the ways that I like to do it is a scan of the body. So maybe we could try that together before Saga comes on. So if you're driving, you know, keep your eyes open, but just notice for a moment, uh, where are your feet? What are your feet doing? Do you feel your whole foot? How about your shins and calves? How are those doing? Move up the body through the knees, through the thighs, the back of the legs, the hips, the base of the spine. Just keep going up and up and up. Notice tension. Notice looseness. Are there parts you can't feel at all? Are there things happening? Are you holding in a certain way? Do you have any pain? As I move up, I notice, oh, I've got a lot of congestion behind my throat, like a clenching, like there's something I want to say that I can't quite get out. Or some tension behind my eyes, like I've been squinting at a screen, which in fact I have. So had I been paying attention to that before, the squinting eyes and the vague sense of pain, that I might have made a different decision about how much time I was going to sit at the computer today. But because sometimes I don't listen to my body, I'm not paying attention to its signals, I make choices that aren't very good for me. Like I might make a choice to eat something I'm not really excited about or to be with people who create extra stress for me. And in this way, the whole field of interoception is kind of shifting the way we view mental health uh, overall, that there is really no brain, no mind, no brain without the body, and that maybe, as Saga says in this interview, all of the things we declare as mental illness are actually just breaks in the accurate connection between the body's signals and the brain itself, that we somehow have lost the capacity to listen to what our bodies are telling us at any given time. So tell me, tell me, how did you pick the title and and what does it mean to you? Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up, actually, because I think there's a bit of irony in uh, the prescriptive tone. You know, of course, I would never want to tell anyone how to change their body, how to know their body, how to tune into their body. That's that's sort of the irony of it is that it's so individual. And that's kind of a big theme in the book is, is empowering people to really reconnect on their own terms. So the title actually is a bit of a playful nod towards Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, hopefully people will make that connection. 
And it's it's a bit of a commentary on kind of the Cartesian angle uh, of his title, which is sort of um, reminiscent of the mind and the body being two separate entities. And so this is really a, an effort to kind of challenge that notion and really kind of reframe it as it's all the body, the mind, the brain, all part of the same entity, this organism that we carry around every day. Oh, I love that integral thinking. That's so beautiful. I will also remind it in that of this old idea, Peter Slaughterdick wrote a book called How to Change Your Life uh, many years ago, 900 page tome drawing off of something from Goethe as if we had a mandate to not be our born and natural selves. So there's also this how to change in and of itself it implies that there's something that needs changing. So it's almost like you're you're going back to like dropping into a natural state, which is like unchanging. Yeah, in a way. I think it does. I think just for me, I mean, if I can already dive a little bit into personal experience, like lived experience, when I was researching the book, I was going through my own kind of reconnection process with my body. And I think, I mean, what you're saying makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, the first step sometimes is just wiping the slate clean and really just just getting in touch with the presence of the inner sense of the body, which in and of itself is unchanging you know, at, at its most fundamental level. And that I found especially therapeutic personally, and really kind of got in touch with that through Reiki um, and other alternative healing modalities. Yeah. The, so even even in the overall framework of the book, the idea that being embodied is about connection to self and connection to others, that was a beautiful way to begin. Define interoception for the listener. What is that? Sure. So interoception is the sense of the body from within. And this can mean everything from sensing hunger signals, um, realizing you're thirsty, realizing you're tired, to emotions. So feeling anger, joy within the body, how that feels in the body, all the way up to something more abstract, like how you feel about your life. Um, this also sometimes has a visceral component to it. It's an established research field now, so there's a lot of clinical literature showing that people with a wide variety of mental disorders have altered interoception in terms of being unaware of bodily signals or being too aware of bodily signals, depending on the disorder. So you can't, you can't feel yourself. There are people um, who have a condition called alexithymia, which makes it really difficult. Yeah. Um, to even know when you're hungry, uh, let alone when you're angry or joyful. And um, that makes it really difficult to navigate your life. And you can also maybe see how that might impact relationships too. So there's definitely, you know, there's an individual component to it, but also a huge relational social component to it. In this inquiry, part of it is like, well, even though I don't really like a lot to be tied to the past, like as an anchor, it anchors the it anchors the present or pulls it away from the moment. It's still interesting to look at, like, what's the root cause or like what causes this disconnection initially. So, in the book, there was a quote from a researcher that measured how comfortable mothers were with the negative emotions of their children, and found that if a mother was had a hard time with the child's negative emotions, then their children were less connected to their own bodies. Like in some way, there there are these environments that disconnect us, or we're, maybe we're told a should, you know, how you should feel or how you should be. But can you name some other 
things that lead to that disconnection in the beginning? Because I think you say in the book, we are born connected. <laughs> right. Well, that's a very sort of philosophical perspective. But yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, that quote from the researcher, Christina Oldroyd. She's a developmental psychologist at Utah Valley University. Just to speak a little bit more about that, um, in terms of the research, I mean, it really does matter how we're raised. You know, in many cases, we're socialized through our bodies. You know, if you're a little kid and you're preparing for a stressful event, like a dance recital, for example, and your caregiver tells you, oh my gosh, you seem really nervous. Let me give you a Xanax, you know, like stop panicking. Then you might learn to just catastrophize that signal um, whenever you feel it, which is a learning process that then gets kind of fixed and carries over into adulthood. But, you know, the same caregiver might tell you, uh, this is totally normal. It's your body preparing for a challenge and you're going to be fine. And to kind of just normalize that signal, you know, is maybe a, a more adaptive approach. Not to throw everything on caregivers, <laughs> um, but the research is kind of showing that there is a link. There's a link to interception and attachment styles as well in development. So you can develop a, a more avoidant attachment style um, if you have this kind of blunted emotional response and poor interception. And on the other side of that, you might develop a more anxious attachment style if you are catastrophizing those signals and really kind of blowing them out of proportion. Research-wise, this is, this is a really new area, kind of the developmental origins of interception. But that, I think, is, is really important because it kind of suggests that if we're formed, if our bodies are sort of formed relationally, then whatever treatment we might need later on or might seek later on perhaps should be relational as well. I won't get too far into it, but that's sort of where plant medicines and psychedelics and other uh, kind of relational healing modalities can come in, I think. Yeah, I think that's the future, like field awareness and healing in the field, for sure. And not just the psychedelic medicines, but like that we're we're learning to feel each other, that we're, we're witnessing that other people have many of the same concerns is, is a totally different way than locking yourself in a room and talking to one person. So you talk about disconnection. I like the structure of the book because in the first section, you're talking about predicting the body. And this, again, seems to be a nod to a model of consciousness, this idea that can we predict our body? So can you speak about that a little bit? One of the most widely accepted accounts of human brain function at the moment is predictive coding theory, which basically says we've evolved to create a, a reliable model of the world around us for survival purposes. So we fundamentally need to be able to anticipate what's going to feel good to us, what might be a threat. Um, and so the brain is, is constantly kind of creating a model of the world and a model of our perception kind of two steps ahead of us. So some might say that, you know, all of perception is a controlled hallucination. It's really kind of the brain generating to the best of its ability what it thinks the world around us looks like. And the body is part of that process. We are not separate from our bodies. You know, their brain and body are connected. So there's also kind of an embodied aspect to the predictive coding as well. 
this is really, I think, where kind of the idea of expanding the possibility space, which I talk about in the book too, um, really comes into play. And that's the idea of updating these predicted models or these learned models that have really been um, fixed into place. And you can do that through mindfulness meditation, through better interoceptive awareness, psychedelics as well. And these sort of rewire those models in a way and let us think, but also feel in a different way than what we might be used to. Then you move into disconnection. I was really struck by what is usually referred to as mental health, you tied to the body. All of these things like anxiety or, as you mentioned before, alexithymia or anorexia, things that are generally thought of as mental health issues. But this goes back to this integration thing you're talking about, that it's not separate. But for the anxiety example was the first one that I was like, oh my gosh, that's so true. Why do you think this false dichotomy of mental health and body health sort of exists? And how did you draw the conclusion that they were so closely related? Just on a very basic level, it's hard to shake an old narrative. It takes a really long time. And we still live in a culture that kind of prioritizes concepts over feelings. And, you know, even in psychiatric settings or therapy settings, a lot of the time, unless you're seeing a somatic therapist, for example, a lot of it is still focused on belief systems and changing the way that you think, which does work for many people. And you could call that mental health treatment, but it kind of misses a huge other piece, which is the body. And in the case of anxiety, for example, yeah, there's just this really interesting body of literature now showing that the body is absolutely a huge part of, of anxiety and specifically like your body not being in the present, but actually being, you know, one hour ahead of where you are now, giving your presentation on stage. And that's more, in some cases, that's more where the distress comes from than anything else. It's really kind of like your body, your body's trying to do you a favor by simulating how it will feel in the future. That can be very helpful in many cases, but in this case, it's not. <laughs> so yeah, it's this sort of hyper aware state of bodily signals that seems to be the problem and kind of catastrophizing that. And of course, I, I want to say too that everybody's body is different. And this is one thing that's kind of glossed over a bit in the interception literature. It's difficult to, to do these studies to begin with. So yeah, and as you said, it's a young field. Yeah, no criticism there at all. But yeah, I'm, I'm kind of speaking, speaking generally about the research. Yeah, but but still, this this question of like, th there's not a, necessarily a relationship between the mind and the body because they are part and parcel of the same organism, and that this idea that the mind controls the body or the body controls the mind that this is kind of a, a very hard thing to unlearn. Yeah, exactly. If you really just take the mind out of the equation for a moment and just look at the brain and the body, it's a two way street. I think oftentimes we we assume that our body just exists to kind of carry around our brain and respond to commands. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the neuroscience research and consciousness research right now is kind of showing it's the opposite, perhaps, that the brain evolved to serve the body and to maintain homeostasis. And 
to really take care of our physiology and our organs. And so there's this constant two-way connection going on under the surface of the mind that we're conscious of at different levels. You know, a lot of it we're not conscious of at all. You know, digestion, often the, oftentimes we don't feel uh, much of it. But there are some researchers like Anton Antonio DiMaggio who argue that the mind is actually just kind of a manifestation of being aware of bodily signals. I would recommend that if anyone's interested in the three-way relationship between body, brain, and mind, and has their interest picked by listening uh, about interception, I would definitely recommend checking out Damasio's work because he's been at this since the early 90s. Yeah, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Other examples that you have in the book are anorexia as a mental, what we would think of as a mental health thing that's overriding the body's natural signals. And you're using that as an example of disconnection from one's own body. Is that how you would phrase it? Yeah. So I think that's a good way to phrase it. I mean, there's definitely a mental component to it, but the interoception research suggests that there's also a really um, important piece related to body trust, specifically in terms of eating disorders. So interoception itself can be broken down into different subscales. And one of the subscales is body trust. So that breaks down into kind of feeling at home in your body, feeling a sense of trust in your body, trusting bodily signals, feeling your body is a safe place. And that in particular seems to be reduced in people with eating disorders. So there's like this fundamental, I would call it a disconnect from feeling safe in one's own body. This is like showing up across the board with different eating disorders. So that's pretty difficult to ignore. And I think it's there's still a lot of research to be done, but I think it's going to change the way that we approach treatment for these disorders. Yeah. And the other piece, I that, just relating to the eating disorders piece, you, there was a snippet somewhere in the book about a researcher who had a bunch of college students play video games for like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And then they, they, and then interviewed them. And I think it says like, if they said, I ran, I jumped, I swam. Uh, and then he took them into the snack room. They ate four times as many calories as people who said my avatar ran or jump or swam. And like that, this, this idea of like the body, like you can imagine. And then I was thinking like, if you're a person who emotionally eats, you feel like you just did a lot of hard work. Like you have a story, you did a lot of hard work. Uh, and, and that might also be like just sort of a confusion, like a deep confusion about reality and what your body's actually doing that causes you to not eat in a patterned way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, would be interesting if there was a link there. I think the, with the example of the study that you just mentioned, that also reminds me of empathy in a way because... Yeah, the part of the brain that's responsible or is like the center of interoception is also really involved in empathy and specifically like feeling into another person's experience. That's also a really interesting aspect of interoception as well is how it relates to kind of a self-other distinction, like where your body begins and another person's body ends. And whether that's really, you know, do you really want to 
feel like you are this video game, you know, this character in the video game, like, does that ability actually translate it into real life? Is that an advantage for you or not? Because sometimes I think we can be too connected to another person or not kind of feel that distinction um, between our emotional experience and someone else's. So having better interoception can kind of help with that, can kind of like ground you in your own body so that you have a yeah, clearer divide. Yeah, there are some things about the benefits of reconnecting that were also just very inspiring and ways to ways to do it. So after disconnection, the structure of the book, you move into reconnection. And I had a new word for me it was comma or a new phrase, comma muta. I love that. Tell, tell us about that. Kama muta is an amazing concept. I discovered it by chance when I was researching for the book. I literally Googled, what does human connection feel like? Because I realized we don't have good ways of describing it, you know, the feeling of, of connection. This research article popped up by Alan Page Fisk, who is a psychological anthropologist at UCLA. And he wrote an entire book about Kamamuta, which is the feeling of being moved by love. And I just love that because it sort of invites the imagination to think of the visceral kind of experience of love automatically. Yeah, in his research, he's found that this, this phenomenon is universal, like across cultures, many cultures, in different languages, people use kind of the same phrases like a warmth in the heart, fuzzy, warm and fuzzy feelings to describe the same emotion. Yeah, it's a really powerful feeling. Like people can use it um, deliberately as well. Like it kind of creates um, an ins a sense of inspiration and connection in people. If you're giving a speech, for example, and you are able to like create that feeling in someone else, it can be really powerful. Yeah, I love that. I'm so glad you brought that up. I think this is a really interesting phenomenon and it's yeah also still in the early stages of being researched. We don't know where it actually happens in the body yet. Yeah, some, some of the other practices, there are other practices for reconnection. This one of recognizing and celebrating Kama Muta was one, trying to create reference points so that some when you're feeling really warm and connected, then you drop in there and you really notice it. You hyper notice and then lock it in as a reference point. That was beautiful. What are some of the other reconnection practices? So movement synchrony. I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of like connecting with themselves through movement and dance. Um, but specifically, there's a whole field of research now just specifically on connecting with others through synchronized movement. So when people are dancing together in a synchronized fashion, they feel more connected. Even sports teams, like if you imagine a rowing team, everyone rowing in synchrony, uh, there have been studies showing that that elevates pain thresholds because people sort of feel like maybe a larger embodied unit, perhaps. Um, so movement synchrony is, is really powerful for connection. Mindfulness practices, I think probably your listeners know quite a bit about that. Yeah, but I was surprised to read in the book that some people, that mindfulness and meditation also, like that that wasn't appropriate for people with anxiety. 
And that was a a new piece of information for me because I've been, you know, hammering on that meditation stuff, like sit with your body, feel your body, notice your sensations, you know, be the only, you have to get quiet and still to do it. But apparently that's not right for certain kind of mental health disorders. Oh, I think it can be great for, for a wide range. Yeah. I I think there's plenty of evidence to show that it's that it's good for anxiety. I think it just depends on the type of meditation. Like not all of them are body focused. Mm -hmm. Where it might become a problem is with something like PTSD maybe where if if someone really has an unsafe relationship with their body and you tell them to go sit down and do a body scan, that might not be the best approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really depends on, I guess like one's relationship with their body more than any particular condition. Oh, interesting. Yeah, back to that thing. It's your body. It's not like a body. Not, not, you know, it's not how to change a body, it's how to change yours. So this customized program of of thinking about what, what your body needs. So do you think that movement synchronicity is what's behind like the whole TikTok dance video craze? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> We're all going to do these crazy dances together. It's like, it, it just gives me a whole, there's a whole new study right there. Okay. Absolutely. Listen, one of the only things people could do during the pandemic too. Like, you know, I went to my fair share of dance events through Zoom and it wasn't exactly the same, but if there was like synchronized movement involved, it felt more like a good substitute for the real thing in a way. Uh, Daybreakers, this uh, morning dance club. Do you know these guys? I do know them. Yeah. (laughs) Daybreaker was doing morning virtual dances during the pandemic. So, okay. We're we're dancing together. We've got movement synchronicity. We're doing some mindfulness. You also mentioned uh, some of the psychedelics and you, you mentioned that before. So how is that working for you? You have a few examples in the book that like MDMA, I think, and ketamine. Yeah. Right. Well, connection is a huge theme with psychedelics. Oftentimes, if people are experience, are having a, a good experience, they oftentimes report feeling greater connection to themselves, their bodies, other people, and the environment. And these things tend to happen kind of hand in hand. So if you feel more connected to yourself, you're also more likely to feel connected to other people and the environment. We've seen some pretty amazing evidence um, in clinical studies of how therapeutic that's been for people. I think for a long time, the psychedelic research has really focused on dissolving your ego and shutting down the default mode network part of the brain, rewiring mental pathways, or just enhancing neuroplasticity. And there really hasn't been, until recently, there really hasn't been um, a focus on connection and social connection as, as really important to that therapeutic process. But we're starting to see more of it. And, and anecdotally, I think you'll hear a lot of people talk about you know, MDMA, for example, is really enhancing connection to self and others. Ketamine is, a, is an interesting example of a psychedelic that is a dissociative. So you would think, oh, you know, isn't this causing some sort of disconnection? Wouldn't you be less connected to yourself? But in a way, at least from my perspective, it almost seems like like a two-step process. Like that disconnect is actually giving you a different experience of your body than you normally have, which in and of itself 
can enhance connection. Um, because again, it goes back to this predictive coding, like waking up every day and being in the same body with the same thoughts. And if you can kind of disrupt that, then you're giving yourself another chance to, to feel different in your body and about life. Um, so yeah, I mean, it really depends on the, the psychedelic, on the, the substance, on the plant medicine that we're talking about, but they're a very powerful, very powerful tool for reconnection. They seem to operate like MDMA operates in unlocking your fear, like this dump serotonin into the brain so you can look at things that scared you before. And when you're not in fear and not isolated, you can look at other people without any kind of resistance to them feeling you. I, I love the book, the Rachel's book. You, if you get a chance to read it, Rachel Neuer's book. It just came out also last month. One of my favorite pieces in the book was talking about decolonizing the body. And there was one phrase, decolonizing the body means learning to trust the liberatory wisdom that lives within all of us. So that's the idea that within all humans, there's the seed of life and that we can with intention water and care for which is really in service to supporting us to navigating our lives with more authenticity, to taking risks, to bringing forward our gifts, our talents, our dreams. So decolonizing the body, that that has so many layers. Um, what is it for you? First of all, that phrase um, in the book comes from Kelsey Blackwell, who's a cultural somatic practitioner in Oakland. And I interview her in the book and she's doing amazing work in the somatic fields. This is the phrase she uses. I think what resonated when she was speaking to me is this idea that life moves towards life. You know what that means for you. <laughs> you know, we live within cultures and systems that sometimes have no regard for whether we are moving towards a, you know, a more whole place for ourselves. Yeah, for me, it means really tapping into that authentic sense of this is how I'm feeling in this moment. And this is what I want to move towards. I think there's a movement component to it. So the idea of, you know, not letting someone else tell you how you should feel, you know, how to craft your life, but really, really feeling viscerally what feels right to you and moving towards that, which is far easier said than done. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's this liberatory wisdom for me. I always love to cite Audre Lorde, the great poet and activist, when I talk about this, because I think we have a great debt to her. Um, she was kind of one of the first writers who made this connection between the sense of the erotic and the wisdom of the body. And the way she defines it, it's you know, the beginnings of our sense of self from, from that origin all the way to the chaos of our strongest feelings. That's how she defines the erotic. I just find that to be such a beautiful understanding of um, what the body is capable of. Yeah. If you're blocking out pain, you've got to be also blocking out intense joy. Yeah. I think there's a, there's something very empowering about being able to hold it all at once, not to deny any of it or you know, assume one is better than the other, but to even interceptively notice any feeling that you're having and honor it and give yourself the space to just honor all of it, everything that you feel. It doesn't mean you have to act on it, but to realize that your body is in service of you, you know, um, 
I think oftentimes we try to fight against our bodies and I'm really convinced that our bodies are our greatest companions. I'd love to talk a little bit about authenticity. This was another another piece, like in the book, there was something around authenticity and lying that got my attention. Like, how can you step more into what you actually desire without shying away from the potential response in the room? But authenticity as a cure for disembodiment was surprising to me. Yeah, I think oftentimes we think of authenticity as like an attitude and it's really, it's thrown around a lot, uh, you know, being your authentic self. You hear that quite a lot these days to the point where it's, it's kind of hard to understand what it means really. Yeah, in terms of embodiment, I think again, it goes back to this liberatory wisdom idea of honoring and trusting what you feel even the like the subtlest feelings that you have not necessarily big feelings but really yeah even just an intimation of something just a a subtle sense that's you you know like that's the very beginning of you yeah like we might call our authentic self who we are when we're at our best like we're in really good shape and we're living our best life and we're you know, eating really well, like that, that's also the authentic self. But that's more of like your narrative self in a way. It's the story that you tell about yourself. And that's great too. But authenticity can also just be super basic, your experiential kind of understanding of yourself. So yeah, I think it's really important to like, return to sensation as a basis for authenticity. Yeah, and that sensation piece, I, I did the Maya scale. Oh, cool. In, <laughs> there's, and there's a, in the, what, what can you do with all this information, with this great understandings that are in here, these ideas? And, and where do you sit? At the end of the book, there are some resources, and one includes this multidimensional assessment of your, is it your interoceptive capacity? Is that what it's yeah. called? Yeah. Interceptive awareness. <laughs> yeah. Interceptive awareness. Yeah. Otherwise it'd be Mike. Okay. Good job, Christine. Okay. So yeah, I, so I thought this was really interesting. I mean, it's one to five and, you know, I was like, well, you know, if I don't have a thousand things going on, my answers are completely different, but you're supposed to answer it on a gut instinct. It has questions like when I'm in conversation with someone, can I pay attention to my posture? Can I return awareness to my body if I'm distracted? It's, you know, it's not that long. It's only 30 or 40 questions, I think. And you're supposed to go through it really quickly, go with your gut instinct, and then it gives you an assessment, like where do you stand? So um, did you did you take that? T- of course you took that test, but what did you find out? What did you learn? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up. And I love that you took it. That's fantastic. Well, I'm curious where you stand or what your uh, result was. When I took it... I noticed right away that breathing was an issue, (laughs) Um, like awareness of breath. That's one of the the subscales. And yeah, I'm like basically hardly ever aware of my breath. With body trusting, I was pretty good, self-regulation. But I will say that you're right. It does depend on the context and the day. And I think it would be useful actually to take it at multiple times in your in your life, you know, like maybe um, on different days or in different months, see if it changes. 
but it's also it's also an assessment that's used in research mostly. So people aren't you people aren't like taking this as a quiz online normally. It's normally like people who have a psychiatric disorder are taking it so that researchers can know where they where they stand interoceptively. It told me that I'm really good at self-regulating. My breathing and all that stuff was fine. My attention regulation is a little lower than it should be, in my opinion. Emotional awareness, fine. But that, like, I am incredibly distractible, like a one <laughs> on a five. I'm like, oh, that is right. But everything else was fine, so I don't worry. But then I thought that was a really good pointer. To, and it's true that when I'm in with the people at work or, you know, it's mostly... I lose my sense of my body when I'm taking care of other people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that scanning of the room, where like, how's everybody else feeling? What does everybody else need? Comes way before what I need. And, and that produces an instinct to isolation. Like, because it's difficult to feel myself when I have obligations to others, or when I feel, you know, their needs are, matter more, in some way, then I force myself into isolation. So I can feel comfortable and aware and connected. And I, I'm hoping to develop that skill a little bit more. I really relate to that. I think it's really difficult, like for people who are maybe more sensitive to the feelings and needs of others. Yeah, it can be really tough being in a social situation and staying in touch with your body. There are two researchers I interviewed, Andy Arnold and Karen Dobkins, who have this amazing article about something called attentional switching, which is which is for social situations. It's for like being in a group of people, even one-on-one. It's basically a way of switching your attention between your interoceptive experience and the feelings of the other person as you perceive them. It's sort of like kind of a d- dynamic back and forth um, attentional switching. And I think that would maybe be useful for some people who kind of feel like they're either all in here or all out there um, and to kind of invite more balance into their lives that way. I think that could be really useful, but it hasn't been tested on any population yet. It's just sort of a theory, but I think it I've used it myself and I've found it quite useful. There's some hints at the end, basic three steps on how to develop more awareness of your body if it's something you're trying to do. Can you talk about those? I think it starts with identify. One really fundamental thing is just noticing what you're feeling inside without attaching any judgment to it. Maybe easier said than done, but I think that's a really great way to begin. Just noticing sensations as they arise, either through a focused attention meditation or maybe an open monitoring meditation just noticing um, to familiarize yourself with them. And then a next step could be what's called labeling, where you actually have a sensation and you you label the sensation, connect it to an emotion. So this is, this is called appraisal, where you kind of make a link between the sensation and the emotion state that you think it's related to. And that can be really useful for like articulating your feeling states if you're not great at that. And then another thing that I found really useful for myself is learn to press pause in between a sensation and an emotion state. Yeah, oftentimes in terms of emotion regulation, if you kind of like feel something arise in you, 
at least in my experience, they're sort of like really quick, you know, it's really quick to go from sensation to like full blown, I'm angry or fearful or anxious or whatever it is. But if you can kind of press pause when you have the initial sensation, the bodily sensation, and step back from that and not judge it as good or bad, give yourself a little bit of time, I think that can be really, really helpful. Yeah, I would say like mindfulness meditation is super, super useful for all three steps. So why did this topic interest you personally? I think I had always been interested in psychology and mental health. I was raised by uh, two medical professionals, kind of like wellness and mental health were always on my mind when I was growing up. But I, I didn't really become interested in it until sort of went through some challenges myself um, from lived experience and had to kind of work through my own anxiety and also an alcohol dependence, which I had for six years and seemed to treat myself through greater awareness of my body and also just kind of putting my body in situations that might have seemed uncomfortable at first, but kind of getting comfortable with the discomfort. Yeah, I just started realizing that there's, at least for me, there was a huge embodied component to better wellness and better mental health. And just through research, I came across interoception and the literature there and just started diving deep on that and uh, really couldn't stop researching. And now I have a book because of it. So <laughs> it's been a really long unfolding process, but I'm super happy to share it with everybody. I really enjoyed the interviews in the book. You know, the, the, like I was kind of going with you on little coffee dates and phone calls, um, you know, to meet all of these people. A good chunk of the book is presented in dialogue fashion. So I get a, it felt like a little taste of your life. Thank you. Yeah, it was. It really was. Um, my hope is that the reader has a sense of kind of like going along the way with me. I think I said this before, but that was that was my favorite part too. I mean, I, I really stayed connected through those interviews during the pandemic, during the endless lockdown that we had in Germany here. I love learning from other people. I love um, just diving into what connection means to different people. It's been a labor of love for me and a true passion, and I'm really happy to be able to share it with other people. Mm, that's so great. I've had this Leslie Odom song on repeat. It's on one of my yoga playlists and I was opening the class with it the other day and he sings, you know, listen, listen, while the storms in your heart are raging, listen, 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 you know, the sound of martyrs praying, listen, listen, brothers and sisters, listen, listen, listen. And that is the art, isn't it? The art of interoception, dropping in, feeling the body, what does it need, what is it saying, what does it want to tell you, whether we can actually listen or not, you know, seems to have a lot of uh, things that get in the way, patterns, adaptations, all of the things. There are a lot of wonderful suggestions in Saga's book, so why don't you, if it interests you as a subject, Google interoception, Google 
How to Change Your Body and find her, her book that's just come out. And do some digging. May you completely feel yourself, listen to and trust your body, trust your toes and your arches and your feet and your belly and your sex and your heart and your mind and your whole being. Only one of you. There will always only ever be one of you. Continuation in the mind of creation evolving from your parents and the antecedents of all humanity that has yet to come. But really, only one you with your unique experiences, your unique place on planet Earth, your unique thoughts. And don't shy away from sharing your gifts. That's, that's what you're here to do. Enjoy your life. Share your gifts. Do what makes you happy. And you'll be surprised at how that is a direct improvement in the world. All right, you know where to find me, Christine at rosewoman.com, the.rose.woman. Rose Woman is, of course, the intimate care brand that I started, sexual intimate care brand, uh, intimate wellness your whole life long. And I have a new venture, Radiant Farms, which is making beautiful plant allies, uh, gummies, psychedelic and psychoactive adjacent gummies for healing with plants. Uh, you know, before you take any farmies or before you uh, take that drink, consider taking some plants. We really love kava. Kava in and of itself helps with pain, inflammation, anxiety of all types. It's mild. The way we extract it is exquisite. It does not have any liver toxicity, which is a problem with some kava. And we uh, disguise the bitterness with sweet mango and organic sugar. So come on over and give our kava a try. It's called Ease for a Reason. And as far as the podcast goes, beloveds, I have a core love language of words of affirmation. So uh, I really appreciate some reviews and for you to tell your friends if you like the show. Be well. Namaste. Namaste.